In Georgia, Republican lawmakers are pushing bills to place sharp new limits on weekend voting and add tough new ID requirements for mail-in ballots. In Texas, they're behind proposals to restrict voting hours and require accelerated purges of voting rolls. Those are among 250 bills that GOP legislators are backing in 43 states, many of them inspired by the fraudulent stop-the-steal claims of former President Trump and his allies, bogus charges that ultimately led to the assault on the U.S. Capitol last January 6th. So now Democrats are striking back with a sweeping bill known as For the People Act that would essentially federalize the rules for U.S. elections across the country, much of it designed to make it easier, not harder, for people to vote. But does the bill, which has already passed the House, go too far? And does it have any chance in a divided Senate? We'll talk to the bill's chief House sponsor, Congressman John Sarbanes of Baltimore, about why he thinks it's needed and how he responds to Republican claims it amounts to a partisan power grab on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 God. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined by our old friend and occasional contributor to Skullduggery, Victoria Bassetti, fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU and an expert on voting and much else. Victoria, welcome back to Skullduggery. It's nice to be skullduggering with you yes. again. Well, you know, uh, Kleinman and I have been getting uh, a lot of complaints. We needed somebody to hold our feet to the fire on this <laughs> podcast, and uh, we chose you. So you have a uh, important task here. <laughs> yeah, well, we should be careful for what we wish for, because yes, uh, yes. Bassetti here is like, we like pretend to be lawyers. We talk like we're we're lawyers. She actually is like a Harvard-trained lawyer. Was a uh, longtime member, uh, not member, staff member on the Senate Judiciary <laughs> we th- Committee. We think we're, we think we're members, though. So. That's right. <laughs> Clerked on the D.C. Circuit. And she's known us for like 25 years at yeah. least. So the truth is I used to I used to leak to both of you. You're <laughs> perfectly honest, right? <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, if only you were still up there on the hill. <laughs> you know, I was trying to remember, actually. I, I think did we get to know each other during like during the Ruby Ridge investigation? That's my oh, my memory, and I know you were also in. We uh, we also called you during Clinton impeachment. Yes, Why? exactly, and uh, and and also during nine nine eleven investigations. Right, right. But right. Danny, you and I actually met and bonded over a Italian mob trial that was happening. Ooh, far more interesting. In, in a courthouse in D.C. That's right. Um, and I, I think I, I, like, I managed somehow or another to sneak you into one of the hearings or, or something. It was the, it was the Pentiti. It was yeah. the, um, what happened was a bunch of mobsters in Sicily uh, went state, state's witness after those famous uh, prosecuting judges were killed, uh, Falcone and Borsellino. And they, couldn't te- it was too dangerous for them to testify, I think, in uh, in Italy. So they brought them with all this security uh, to the U.S. courthouse in D.C. I think that's what it was. Wow. Yeah. And I was working at the courthouse at the time. And yeah. 
Yeah. You know, you leaked to us, but my recollection is back in those days, we had pretty good uh, expense accounts. You got you got some pretty good meals out of it. And I'm sure I also was not the only person leaking to you. <laughs> Both of you have kind of rather impeccable sources. I think we got to so. do a buried treasure on that Italian mob trial. Yeah. Um, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Well, look, we have serious business to discuss here. This H.R. Uh, 1, uh, which is the For the People Act, is uh, it's passed the House. It goes to the Senate next week. Senate is... Um, Starting hearings uh, going to be chaired by Amy Klobuchar. The rhetoric on this has like uh, gone sky high. On the one hand, uh, you have Democrats saying this is essential to uh, restore American democracy, save American democracy from what Republican lawmakers are trying to do. And uh, as I said in the intro, um, Republicans see this as a partisan power grab to make sure that they don't win any future elections. I thought it was really interesting because this bill has accelerated talk about doing something about the filibuster. And this seems to be the one that the Democrats want to make a stand on. But Mitch McConnell, man, threatened to basically shut down the Senate if the Democrats go that route. I mean, for him, this is, uh, you know, a fighting matter. I, uh, I don't know what you make of it, Victoria, but it seems like it could get quite bloody in the Senate. The, the truth is, w- when it comes to voting, wherever you almost wherever you live, if HR1 passes, a lot is going to change about the way you vote. If it doesn't pass, a lot is going to change about the way you voted in 2020. So it's going to be pretty dramatic. And then I think that this is one of those kind of, we've got a few weeks or months coming up in the Senate that are going to be in the history books. Yeah. Because of the the impact of the debate on the filibuster, you know, win or lose, whatever happens to the filibuster, it's going to dramatically change the shape of the yeah. Senate. I mean- Look, I, I don't think there's much, we'll get into this, I'm sure, uh, with our guests, but I don't think there's much ch- chance of, at all of a wholesale uh, elimination of the filibuster. Uh, you've got, I mean, everyone talks about Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema, but actually you have a whole bunch of Democrats who probably would oppose it. Diane Feinstein, for example, is one of them, I think. But they are talking about a, a, a kind of a carve out or a reform of the filibuster so that they could pass H.R. 1. And I think this is the one piece of legislation that you might be able to get support for that from um, some of these more moderate uh, Democrats. But I think it will be limited um, in nature and you're not going to see um, all of a sudden, you know, the floodgates opening with progressive legislation getting through uh, because the filibuster is gone. Uh, but look, there's um, other uh, news this week uh, and some pretty grim news, um, the horrific rampage in Atlanta at these uh, these spas that left eight people dead, six Asian women, and this happening at a time of rising uh, violence and uh, and hate crimes targeting um, Asian Americans. Uh, it raises some complicated uh, legal questions. Uh, we don't yet know uh, everything or even that much necessarily about the motive of the perpetrator here. Uh, and so questions about, wh- about whether the prosecution could bring um, a, a hate crime here, because so far no evidence has emerged of anti-Asian uh, bias. It, it is complicated because, you know, if, if you're an Asian American in this country and you see something like this happen, how do you separate it? from the idea of, of racial bias, uh, animosity um, in, in your community. You just can't. On the other hand, this is colliding with 
core principles of our justice system, which is that you have to have evidence that you can bring before a jury uh, to um, uh, to bring that kind of a case. Can I just break in here? Because, look, and I, I do not want to for a second um, uh, underestimate the seriousness of of this and, and of Asian-American prejudice and hate crimes that are clearly going on and inspired a lot by, you know, the political dynamics in this country, particularly the clash with um, uh, we're, we're having with China right now. Uh, we talked about this when we had Josh Rogan on. But I got to say that I just, you know, the, the, the focus on whether or not this is a hate crime or not. I mean, the guy killed eight people, right? He's going to face the harshest penalty under Georgia law that you could get for murder. Which is the death penalty. Which is the death penalty. So I don't quite understand why we're having this big debate about whether or not this is a hate crime. It's not going to make any difference in how aggressively he gets prosecuted and the penalty he ultimately could receive. Look, I understand that point on the one hand. There is no um, there is no enhancement in terms of punishment to the death penalty, right? The death penalty is about the toughest. There so is, then why right? do we need well, because, to make this and, a hate and, you know, crime? It's a horrific the, crime well, be, that should be prosecuted. Period. Okay, this is why, because I think there was a, a policy objective to these hate crime laws as well, which is that they are meant uh, not just to enhance punishment against the, the, uh, the people who commit heinous crimes. Uh, They are also meant to send a message to those communities that are vulnerable and who are targeted for this kind of hate-inspired violence, uh, that they will be protected, that the government has their back as well. And, you know, I think um, for a lot of people out there, uh, that is an important message. And in fact, I think it should be uh, for all of us. But it it is probably moot, at least based on what we know right now, uh, because I don't see how prosecutors uh, could. What the perpetrator has said was he was a uh, he was a sex addict. That was his motivation. It did. So we should ta- we should of course take him at his word for what his motivations were. I well, mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, the Cherokee County Sheriff's Department didn't really cover themselves in glory in terms of figuring out how to explain what happened, taking the the perpetrator's word for it about what his motivations were. They they haven't. And that exactly, was a very bad day for him, which was uh, for a community that was asking for an acknowledgement of the extent of the hate crimes that they face against one another, who were seeing the the lives of the victims kind of overlooked and the worth of the victims overlooked in the course of all of this, to then have the Cherokee Sheriff's Department take a, a murderer's word for it about what his motives are and kind of excuse what he did on, uh, as, a, um, as a bad day just really did not help the situation. No. And and, and we should say that we, we don't know. This investigation is ongoing. Agreed. But but look, you know what happens after any one of these crimes. People scour social media for what he might have posted. Um, they talk to friends. They talk to neighbors. Yeah. And so far as I can tell, so far, nobody has found evidence that this guy was inspired by hatred or prejudice against Asian Americans. So far. As right? they say, developing story, right? Right. Yeah, but right. Yeah. I got one question for Victoria on this uh-huh. for the lawyer here. Let's set aside the Asian American uh, discrimination. What about gender um, as a predicate here? And, and the reason I say that is because he has said that he you know is a is a sex addict and that what he was trying to do was eliminate the temptation and so to do that 
he went on a rampage and targeted all of these women because they were supposedly the source of that temptation. So if he's targeting women, you know, who he in his uh, twisted mind allegedly uh, believed were the reason that he was tempted. I mean, it, could you could you bring I wonder if you could bring a case, a hate crime uh, on the basis of, of, of gender. Yeah, it has been done before. Again, awfully hard to prove that you're right. And there's that, that, that sort of, in this case, it was, again, bearing in mind what Mike says, which is that the evidence is developing. There seems to be a blend of misogyny as well as, you know, kind of anti-Asian American hate. Right. And that's one of the things that part of the discussion has been this sort of hypersexualization of Asian women in particular. Yeah, there's no telling. The evidence will evolve, but you could absolutely bring a hate crime case on the basis of, of gender. And the point of doing that when he's already going to be facing murder charges? The, the point of doing that is, is that there's some crimes that deserve to be called what they are. You know, as simple as that. It's part All of right. the it's part yeah. of the story of America. Yeah. Were you there? Were you on the Hill when they passed the um, hate crimes legislation? No, 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 not not the original one. But there, there's right. almost always a kind of hearings and work on it. I think they go back to George H.W. Bush, maybe. I mean, yeah. and, that you know, they are, as you say, they're always being kind of amended and revised. So, I mean, th- this may start a conversation about whether these the hate crime. This, is, of course, is the is the Georgia hate crime statute uh, and the FBI has not gotten involved. So they're not talking about federal hate crimes yet. Um, but we'll have to see what happens. All right. I know you want to talk about what's going on at the border, uh, which does seem to be like a uh, mounting crisis for the Biden administration. Well, don't, call it 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 to, it, don't call it a crisis. They don't call Gensaki, it a crisis. It's a big right? problem. Yeah. I, yeah. A very big problem that only seems to be getting worse. Uh, but I look, this is a show about, about voting. I wanted to just go to like my favorite story of the week, which is about this guy named Richard Hopkins, the mail carrier in Erie, Pennsylvania who claimed right after November 3rd that he overheard the local postmaster discussing plans to backdate ballots received after the November 3rd vote and pass them on to election officials as legitimate. He was working with this uh, vigilante group project Veritas, which put out his um, his claims about this. Lindsey Graham then cited uh, Richard Hopkins' claims in a letter to the Justice Department calling for a full federal investigation into uh, the supposed fraud in Erie, Pennsylvania. And this week, we got the results of a Postal Service investigation into the entire matter. And, you know, surprise, surprise, there was absolutely nothing to it. Hopkins changed his story and claimed he didn't really hear them uh, talking about backdating ballots. He just saw the postmaster and somebody else talking about it, and he assumed that's what it was about. The Postal Service examined the ballots. They reviewed it several times and concluded the entire thing was completely bogus. But the part I love about it, which is that That hasn't stopped Hopkins 
from raising money off his bogus claims. Kind of like a GoFundMe He's, he's uh, got a GoFundMe, $236,000 he's raised via the, it's not GoFundMe, it's a Christian crowdfunding website called Give, Send, Go. He's doing this under a fundraising campaign titled Backdated Ballot Whistleblower Coerced by Feds, even though he himself has walked away from his initial claims, or at least he did in the interview with the Postal Service Inspector General. So I guess, you know, it's not just Donald Trump who's raising money off the stop the steal claims. It's uh, even figures like this postal worker in Erie, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And of course, it relates directly to what we're about to talk to, because. Well, why all do you these think I le- brought it up? OK, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just I'm not trying to think of transition orders, uh, you know, <laughs> follow the thread, man. Follow the thread. Anyway, well, one of the things that the legislation we're about to talk about does, it, it extends the period under which absentee ballots can be received. So it's right on point. That's exactly what I was about to say. All right, I'll I'll, uh, back (laughs) off and uh, let's go to our guest, Congressman John Sarbanes. We've now got with us the aforementioned Congressman John Sarbanes of Baltimore, author of H.R. 1, the For the People Act. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be with you. Thank you. So you have the uh, sort of uh, you know biggest bill before Congress right now uh, after the uh, COVID relief package has passed. Uh, it's your bill has passed the House. It goes to the Senate. The hearings start next week. Tell us in summary why you think this is so important and why it's needed right now. It's important because it's something the public has been asking us for for years now. I mean, we didn't just write H.R. 1, S1 on the back of an envelope. This came from listening very carefully to people out there in the country who have real grievances about the democracy and whether their voice still matters in their own democracy. And some of those grievances we heard that we tried to address were, number one, uh, every two years, I want to be able to get to the ballot box without having to run an obstacle course. It's crazy that here we are in the year 2021, and America's as far away from the gold standard of voting as um, you could possibly be when you compare us to a lot of our peer nations. So we wanted to respond to that. We have a whole set of voting reforms to that effect. They want to see fair redistricting because they're tired of this idea that politicians choose the voters instead of the other way around. So we address that. They told us when you go to Washington, behave yourselves act ethically and accountability and with transparency. So we've got a series of ethics reforms that are embodied in the bill. And lastly, and I would say in in some ways as important as any other measure in the bill, this notion of don't get tangled up in the money when you go to Washington and Congress. And when you serve for the public interest, remember that you're there for the public and that you're not leaning towards special interests and PACs and insiders and lobbyists and the whole crowd. And so we've got a series of measures to push back against this undue influence that big money has. So all those things came at us. The reason it's particularly important in this moment is we see this campaign, this stampede in the other direction uh, right now by the Republican Party towards voter suppression, towards partisan gerrymandering, and using big money to spread disinformation. So the plus minus 
on getting HR1, S1 over the finish line uh, couldn't be greater. The stakes couldn't be higher. That's why we're pushing as hard as we can. Some of the uh, measures in there that you that you mentioned, gerrymandering, uh, uh, public financing of campaigns, uh, ethics reforms, all those are worthy, uh, certainly worthy of debate. But, um, you know, the pushback that you hear from a lot of people is it doesn't they don't directly relate to the issue that you said is most urgent right now, and that is the integrity of voting and and making it accessible to as many Americans as possible. And that by throwing all that in, you're undercutting the chance of getting what is most needed right now. So we're taking our direction from the people. And the people have said, if you don't do all of this stuff, you haven't solved the problem. And let me explain what I mean by that. If you make it so we can have fair elections, but the people you elect get to Washington and they don't behave ethically or they get taken hostage by the big money crowd and start leaning in that direction. You haven't solved the problem of the average citizen feeling like they're being disrespected in their own democracy. So we didn't lump all this stuff together just because we thought a bigger bill was better than a smaller bill. We did this because the public was saying we want in on all of these things. We want to be able to vote. We want to be able to rely on you to act ethically when you get to Washington. And we sure don't want this big money crowd stepping in at the last minute and grabbing hold of the public policy apparatus so that it favors them and not us. So we've been taking our instructions and our direction from the public out there that says, if you're serious about giving our democracy back to us and putting us at the center of it, You've got to do all these things. And that's why we've kept the bill together throughout this process. Uh, we, we definitely want to get into the, uh, the money and politics piece of this. But let's just for a minute uh, drill down a little bit into some of the voting parts of this legislation. It's everything from providing at least two weeks of early voting, mail-in balloting, um, mandating that every state would have no excuse absentee voting, automatic voter registration. Talk about some of these specific provisions, why they're so important. And then we also you know, are going to want to talk about tactics here because this is uh, past the House, but uh, it's going to have a very tough time in the, in the Senate. So we'll get into the filibuster discussion as well. Sure. Well, the goal on the voting side of this and, and sort of making it easier for people to register and vote is when somebody gets up in the morning during election time, and that's the day they've decided they're going to vote, whether it's sitting at their dining room table, filling out an oval in a mail-in ballot, or it's going to an early voting site, uh, or it's showing up on election day to cast their vote. They shouldn't have to make like 10 contingency plans because they're worried about something happening that's going to frustrate their access to the ballot box. So all of these things are simply designed to make it more convenient and easier for people to vote where they can have confidence that their voice is going to be heard at election time. Automatic voter registration, same-day registration, online voter registration. All that's about is get people onto the rolls so that doesn't have to be a heavy lift for them. Then you get to the voting. Uh, Congressman, before we get to the yeah. voting, uh, just on the on the um, automatic voter registration, what does that mean exactly? I mean, uh, yeah. can you opt out of it if you decide you don't want to uh, be registered, you don't want to be on the, the, uh, on, on the rolls? How does that work? 
Absolutely, you can opt out. This is America. It's a free country. But the idea is that when you interact with a government agency, let's say the, the Department of Motor Vehicles, for example, that is collecting all the same information from you for purposes of issuing your driver's license, that you would also be providing if you were going to register to vote. They can say to you, hey, I've got all your information here. Um, we can sign you up and register you so that you're uh, able to vote. Do you want to opt out or should we keep you in the system so we get you registered? And then you can say, that's great. Here's my political party. Let me confirm the information. Or you can say, you know what? I don't want to get registered at this time. It's at this sort of point of sale. It just makes it easier for people. And California, which is a, uh, a state, it's, it's a country sometimes, it seems, <laughs> but it's a state that um, employed this. They've added um, over 2 million people to the rolls using automatic voter registration. But just as importantly, and I was talking to the former Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, who's now a new member of the United States Senate, about this, they've cleaned up the records, the information in their database of another 8 or 9 million Californians because of that interaction that they're having with people. So that just makes the system better. It gives it more integrity and all the rest of it. So registration is key. But then the other piece is in 2020, in that election, people fought their way to the ballot box in order to pull our democracy back from the brink. And they chose a lot of different modalities of voting for that, mail-in, voting on election day, early voting, et cetera. But they shouldn't have to fight their way to the ballot box. It should be an easy process. And so what we're saying is, let's change this so that starting in 2022, the midterms, people have a confidence that when they show up, they're going to be able to vote. And by the way, and this is critical, let's have real penalties there to push back on voter suppression, voter purging, voter intimidation, all of these things that have created obstacles for people exercising their franchise. You know, a lot of people argue that those obstacles are really about preventing fraud or making sure that, the, you know, that, that the person who says they're voting is actually voting. And I'm sure you've been hearing that a lot yeah. uh, from people saying that this bill is going to actually make these sort of bad things happen more. Do you, do you think they have a point? No. First of all, there's there's very little evidence. I think the the odds of an individual engaging in election fraud are like, you know, less than being hit by lightning or having triplets or whatever standard you want to use. There's no real evidence of election fraud. There's plenty of evidence of voter suppression. And these are measures that are designed to address voter suppression and make it easier for people to cast their vote. So the the voter fraud fantasy or fiction has been thrown out there for years now uh, to justify and support and, and rationalize efforts at voter suppression. And we shouldn't be taken in by that. And so we're pushing forward to make this process easier uh, for people and more convenient. And by the way, there's a lot of elements to strengthening the how we administer elections and voting uh, that increase confidence, increase the verifiability of this kind of thing so that anybody who's concerned about fraud can take some solace in knowing that we're building a system that's very responsible and very effective. And that's what we should be doing. Again, we should have the gold standard in this country. You know, Congressman, 
one of the things about this whole debate is the you know the political hyperbole on both sides uh, gets really extreme. So that any proposal that might eliminate fraud or make it less likely, I understand you don't think it's very common or very common at all, gets viewed as targeting minorities. And, you know, the one that I've never quite got is voter IDs somehow is uh, discriminatory. I mean, look, you know, when uh, you go to uh, fly on an airplane in this country, you have to produce an ID. Nobody says the airlines and TSA is engaging in discriminatory behavior trying to prevent minorities from getting on a flight. When you buy a beer at a baseball game, you have to show an ID. Nobody's saying they're they're discriminating against minorities because you have to, to do that. It just seems that any proposal that might seem on its face reasonable, like show you are the registered voter when you show up at the polls, gets cast in the most negative possible light. And that undercuts, you know, some of the larger goals you might have. Yeah. So there's no fundamental right to get on an airplane and there's no fundamental right to buy alcohol. But it's part of life in America. It is part of life, but it's it's arguably a layered on privilege or opportunity that goes beyond sort of baseline fundamental rights. Voting is a fundamental right in a democracy. So you need to do everything you can to preserve people's ability to access that opportunity. And the fact of the matter is, yeah, most people are going to have whatever the form of ID is. And there are also ways to get those who don't have IDs to get them IDs. Right. right? But if somebody shows up and for one reason or another, and we've seen that there's a disproportionate impact on um, certain segments of the population in terms of not having the particular ID that's being required. If they show up, they're there in good faith. They want their voice to be heard and their vote to be cast and counted. The fact that they can't produce the particular ID that's being asked for should not stop them from exercising their vote, particularly when and this is in the bill, we have a provision that says they can attest under penalties of perjury that they are who they say they are. In other words, it's not like you show up, you don't have the ID that's being required or requested, and they say, just, you know, whatever, go on in, you can do it. We don't even need to know who you are. In order to vote under those circumstances, you've got to fill out an affidavit that says, I am John Sarbanes. I am who I say I am. And I'm signing here under penalties of perjury with, with criminal penalties resulting from that. So if somebody wants to take that chance of violating the law, you're still talking about a tiny, tiny percentage of the population. Most people are coming. They're only showing up because they want to vote. They're not showing up because they want to game the system or defraud anybody. And we ought to give them that opportunity. What, what about ballot collection, which is sometimes called by Republicans ballot harvesting, where somebody can collect ballots from multiple people and put them in? Now, you know, somebody looking at that says, shouldn't, you know, an individual voter be the person who cast his or her ballot? You know, when you show up at the polls, you go in alone, you know, they close the curtain and you vote. One person doesn't get to cast the ballot for, you know, 10, 15, 20 people. Some of these Republican proposals address that. You would bar the uh, legislation 
at the state level that would that would restrict ballot harvesting. This is based on the data, the evidence, and and the actual real life experience that we've seen around elections. And we don't need to go try to solve problems that don't exist. There's again no evidence that ballot harvesting, as as the terminology has come to be known, is a problem out there that's that's resulting in fraud or mischief or anything else. And there are going to be circumstances where it's perfectly appropriate to want to have somebody get your ballot for you to the polls. Now, this is a ballot, by the way, that is going to be sealed, right? And typically where there's going to be a signature on the outside, there's a lot of verification components to it. The mere collection of it to get it to to the polls or to the ballot box or the drop-off box or whatever doesn't present any real opportunity for mischief based, again, on our experience. So why throw in there an extra hurdle or impediment when there may be a very good reason under those circumstances for that kind of collection of the ballot to occur? And we're trying to design this system based on reality, based on people's real motives, and the fact that, like I said, when you get up in the morning and and you're goal for that day is to get your vote in, you shouldn't have to worry about whether that's going to happen or not happen. You should have a confidence about it. And that is undergirding every dimension of the voting reforms and registration reforms that we've put into H.R. 1. Not too many years ago, bills about voting got Republican votes. The Help America Vote Act got Republican votes. The National Voter Registration Act did. Uh, the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. Why aren't there any Republicans voting for H.R. 1? Well, I always sort of feel like the Republicans should be the ones to answer that question. But if I had to, if I had to conjecture, sadly, I think it's because the Republicans over the last few years have gotten conditioned to winning elections with a playbook that tries to shrink the size and, in a sense, manipulate the makeup of the political town square. Instead of going and trying to win on the merit of their ideas, win hearts and minds based on their program proposals, They've gotten used to this idea of, well, if we suppress the vote, if we have partisan gerrymandering, if we use all this money to spread disinformation, we don't have to be accountable to a larger, more diverse electorate. And therefore, we can win on those terms. The danger in that, which we've seen play out, frankly, is that when you're not accountable to a broad audience out there, You create an ecosystem, a political ecosystem, in which extreme elements can get traction. And you don't really have an incentive to police those voices or flush them out because you don't have to be accountable for them. I think, in fact, the promise of H.R. 1, S1, the For the People Act, is it would result in the long term in the Republican Party kind of cleaning up its act because they would realize, hey, We can't win elections by manipulating things anymore. We actually have to do it by coming up with good ideas, retrenching, kind of stepping back and figuring out what about our party and our ideology and our principles uh, have a resonance out there with the public. So it would be better for strengthening a responsible two-party system in this country uh, if you did that. But unfortunately, what they are reaching for reflexively now is this other playbook 
And exhibit A in that is what's happening across the country right now at the state level, where Republican lawmakers have introduced over 250 bills in 43 states uh, to roll back voting. And let me make this point because it's important. A majority of Republicans, Democrats, and independents support H.R. 1. It may be that the leadership of their party, starting with Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy in Washington, and apparently extending out to many lawmakers across the country in the GOP, that they've decided that these reforms aren't good for them. But the broad electorate out there, including a majority of Republicans, wants to see these changes. And that's why we're undeterred in our effort to get this change. So, uh, yeah, I think you know that Republicans would not make the um, the same argument that you just made on their behalf. <laughs> uh, well, I was I, asked to do it, right? So, right. So, I, I think what they would, you know, among the things they would say is that under our federalist system, um, it's been left up to the states uh, to administer yeah. elections all these years, and that and that HR one uh, is a wholesale federal takeover of voting. What what do you what do you say to that? That's a genius argument to make, because if you look at their Save Our Democracy Act, it's the federalizing of elections for the purpose of going in the wrong direction. They've proposed a bill that would impose their version of democracy on every state, but it's the version that we're seeing playing out right now with these state lawmakers. It's taking away people's access to the ballot box. So apparently this anxiety or concern they have over federalizing elections is fine when it's being applied to Democrats' efforts to remedy a broken system. But when it comes to their efforts to kind of entrench a system of voter suppression, they're perfectly prepared to issue rules at the federal level. Now, having said that, the fact of the matter is that Congress has authority through the time, place, and manner clause of the U.S. Constitution to regulate and make these baseline standards for federal elections across the country. As a practical matter, in any state, once you have to put those standards in place for federal elections, you're going to do it for state elections and local elections because it's just a matter of efficiency and logistics. But we have the authority when it comes to federal elections. That's clear. And the jurisprudence of the U.S. Supreme Court is clear on that issue as well. So we're on very solid constitutional ground with these voting reforms that we're proposing. And we know that they can withstand any kind of legal challenge that will come at them. So you you mentioned that that, uh, evidence of voting fraud is extremely limited, Um, although there are occasional examples uh, and and prosecutions on that. Um, But there's also, you know, every cycle, there are claims of voting irregularities that often get sort of, you know, shorthanded into fraud. So let me ask you about right now, Iowa's second congressional district, where the Republican, Miller Meeks, won by six votes. There were three recounts by Iowa officials that upheld her and certified her as the winner. And now Democrats in the House, led by the Speaker, are trying to overturn the results of that election uh, and let the House overturn the election that the state officials have certified. Doesn't that kind of undercut 
your message about, you know, protecting the right to vote and uh, the integrity of elections when you are making what looks to many people like a clearly partisan move to overturn a legitimately certified election? Well, there's a lot of different ways that these um, elections, particularly when they're very, very close, there's a variety of processes that you can And we leave pursue. it up to the states and the courts. But there's way there's appropriate ways you can challenge this. Right. Now you're still gonna you're still gonna it's still gonna land in one place or the other after all of the challenges have been undertaken, and I think the process that you just described uh, reflects that. But the fact of the matter is, in life, in the world, in politics, you're gonna have some very very close elections like that that demand the kind of attention and scrutiny and potentially challenge which is why you do want to minimize fraud as much as you can for sure and you also want to build in things like paper ballots and all of these elections auditing so you can see where there's been issues in terms of how an election was carried out so you can fix it for the next time we have all of those actually baked into HR1 because we want this to be a continuing learning exercise that can improve our democracy over time and address better each time situations like the one you just just described but also frankly so that a lot of the energy that gets expended at election time by volunteers by voters by activists by candidates instead of uh, having to try to compensate for broken parts of the system can actually be built in a positive way, layered on top of a strong foundation of the system. And we're trying to get that strong foundation, that bedrock in place for the democracy. Are you comfortable with the House possibly overturning this election that's been certified in uh, Iowa? I'm not comfortable with the the phrasing of that, because if it proves out based on the data that gets collected from various sources that the result of that election is different, then that ought to be the one that is ultimately certified. So I don't view that as an overturning of the election. Well, come I on, view you that want, as you getting want nonpartisan commissions set up to do gerrymandering, to take politics yes. out of it. But having the House Administration Committee do the investigation when it's controlled by Democrats is not a nonpartisan exercise. Well, look, over time, you're going to have, I think, as I say, continuous improvement. And that can lead to what I consider to be like next generation reforms. Next generation can be very quickly. Right now, what we've got embedded in HR1 is a series of reforms across all three baskets, voting, ethics, and campaign finance, that represent kind of the sweet spot of what Americans of all political stripes are telling us they want to see. I think conversations about election integrity verifiability, accountability in our voting system can lead to next generation improvements of the kind that you're describing. But there's so much we need to do that's broken with the existing system that is addressed in HR1. We need to get that in place. But look, these are all fair topics of conversation and challenge and debate, I think. And I think it's appropriate to bring those up and push on me and other lawmakers to reach a kind of level of accountability and transparency that matches the appetite in the country. We're dealing with an electorate and a public that has become deeply cynical. 
about politics and governing. And we have a responsibility to, frankly, meet. If you look at what Americans did in, in November, they came out in numbers never seen to pull the democracy back. And what that said was as angry as they are about sort of being marginalized in this democracy, they still care enough about the democracy to, to kind of save it. We have to show them we have the same level of appetite for that kind of rescue mission. And I think HR1, S1, Before the People Act, is our response to the fragility of the democracy. If we don't get it done as lawmakers, then shame on us. This is the moment for us to step up and take responsibility. It's not an easy path. We know that. It wasn't easy getting it done in the House, even though we ultimately got a very good vote. But um, getting this landed in the House and the Senate and onto the desk of a president will sign it is going to be the hardest thing I think we do, we've done in a long, long time, if we can get it done. But the people want to see that. So one of the things that's uh, fed the cynicism of the American people about our politics for a long time um, is the presence of big money in politics and then, and, and, yeah. you know, unleashing uh, super PACs uh, on our political system, uh, just kind of supercharge that. You um, in, in HR1, you've got a small donor matching system that is aimed at countering the power of big money in politics. Um, tell us about it. There's a little bit of a twist to it, which is sort of how it's paid for. And I want, to, want you to talk about that. So, so if you think about, you can put a civil rights lens on HR1, which suggests, and, and, I, and I, I like to do that as much as I can, because you know, John Lewis is a central figure in this reform effort. He's not only got his name attached to HR4, the Voting Rights Advancement Act, which is an important part of this overall effort at reform. But he wrote the first 300 pages of H.R. 1. All of the voting reforms come from his Voter Empowerment Act that he introduced for five Congresses in a row. He saw voting as a civil right, but he also understood that access to political participation, which is a civil right, can be found or challenged when it comes to the candidates that can access that political town square. We want to promote the diversity of voters who can access the ballot box with the voting reforms, but we also need to promote the diversity of candidates that can access that opportunity. If the voters show up with great diversity and the slate of candidates that they have in front of them that they can choose from is not diverse, you haven't completely solved the problem of broad access to political participation and representation in this country. So the small donor matching system has been proven at the state and local level across the country where it's been implemented to increase race, gender, and socioeconomic diversity of candidates because you don't have to have a lot of money yourself or know of people who have a lot of money in order to run a viable campaign. If you collect small donations and you earn matching funds, you can be competitive. And you look at places like New York City, Connecticut, Arizona, Seattle, Maine, you're seeing a diversity of candidates who step forward, can power their campaigns with these new systems of campaign finance, and then they get elected and they go represent their, their constituents. And they actually end up putting in place better public policy 
because they're more broadly representative of what the public wants to see. So we think it's a critical, critical piece of lifting up people's voices out there. And as you say, we came up with a, a very innovative way of paying for this. There's no taxpayer money used for the matching fund that will put a six to one match on small donations for participating candidates. Instead, we put a small surcharge on government settlements with these big corporate lawbreakers out there. And that's where the dollars come from. So picture, for example, if this system were in place, that surcharge, it's less than 5%. It would apply when Facebook is settling with the government for violating people's privacy. Wells Fargo is settling because they created dummy accounts and defrauded their customers. Purdue Pharma is settling because they've been fueling an opioid addiction across the country, et cetera. In other words, those actors out there that have been leaning on our system and our politics, breaking the trust of the people, they should be asked to help underwrite a new system that can actually restore the trust of the people. And so that nexus is very powerful. And we think that component of the bill, the small donor matching system, can really transform what the makeup of our politics looks like and the access. And you talk to people like Mondaire Jones, Richie Torres out in New York, others across the country who've seen the benefits of this system, and they view this component of the bill as one of the most critical elements. So we've only got a few minutes left, but last most important question, this bill is heading to the Senate, which is not exactly the friendliest environment for you. And it's getting tied up probably in fil- in the filibuster. What do you think are its prospects in the Senate? Is the Senate really ready to take on the filibuster to make this happen? I think the prospects are pretty good, actually. I mean, I'm not naive about this, but increasingly you're hearing the argument, and it's certainly compelling to me, that whatever else you think a 60-vote supermajority requirement ought to apply to in terms of legislation, it should not be used to thwart legislation that's trying to restore majority rule in America. Um, These are baseline fundamental rights that we should have in our democracy and solutions that we should have in our democracy. And it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense that you would frustrate that and you'd frustrate the will of the public with a 60 vote supermajority procedural requirement. So I don't pretend to be an expert on the mysteries of the Senate, and I have no desire to be an expert on that. Don't they say that's the House's main enemy is the Senate, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I do think that the appetite for these democracy reforms that are embodied in H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, that appetite is beginning to merge with this interest and appetite and discussion around filibuster reform. And there's an alignment there that's, I think, going to generate some real power and could be what we need to get this over the finish line in the Senate and get it onto the desk of President Biden. So I will tell you this, the journey of this bill has always been one where we've created new realities that we didn't think possible the day before. I never thought this would be H.R. 1, the first bill after Democrats have been eight years in the minority uh, to be introduced and designated as such. We did that in 2019. We did it again in 2020. 
I never imagined that in 2019, every single Democrat in Washington would co-sponsor this bill. But that happened. The idea that this would also get the S-1 designation in the Senate side was completely out of my realm of thinking. That happened. And by the way, in the last 20 years, any time a bill has gotten an HR-1 and S-1 designation, it's become law. So that's a pretty good omen here. So we keep creating new realities here. But it's not us, the lawmakers. It's the public doing it because they are projecting this demand for change. And I'll, I'll just make this other observation because there's something cosmic going on here. The fact of the matter is that the United States Senate is in Democratic hands because of two lightning strikes in the state of Georgia, two runoff election wins on the same day, the day before the attack on the United States Capitol. That's what handed the Senate to the Democrats. The state of Georgia is the state that John Lewis represented in the United States Congress for decades. The notion that a Democratic Senate would not go cement the legacy of John Lewis under those conditions is, is unfathomable to me. Somebody is writing an epic novel here about democracy reform and giving the people their voice back. And you couldn't come up with this. You wouldn't be audacious enough to suggest that the fate of our democracy would rest on winning two runoff elections on the same day in the same state. Just to get that lineup period is almost impossible. That it would then produce the result it did is amazing. And it creates a new reality. So something is at work here. I think it's fueled by passion and desire on the, on the part of the American people to restore their democracy. And we can't let them down in this moment. And I think ultimately that sense of inevitability and meeting the challenge in this historic moment is what's going to determine the outcome. And I think it can be a very positive outcome. Well, we always uh, like to end on a cosmic uh, yeah, note. Yeah, I was going to say on that on cosmic note, <laughs> <laughs> Congressman, I want to thank you uh, for uh, joining us. And um, we have you on record saying your prospects are pretty good. So we will uh, be back to you to see whether your forecast is uh, is accurate. But thanks okay. a lot. Okay. Thank you all very much. Take thank care, you Congressman. Take care.